You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. A very warm welcome to you all this afternoon to um, the Friends of Europe event on the World Energy Outlook in partnership with the International Energy uh, Association. My name is Dharmendra Kanani. I'm your moderator for the next hour and a half. I'm the Director of Strategy at uh, Friends of Europe. Um, this has become a, kind of an annual event, a key milestone in the calendar for us to look at what's happening on matters of energy. Um, before I, I, I welcome on, on stage um, our, our key keynote speaker, um, I want to say just a few words by way of introduction. Um, it's undoubtable, it's, not, it's undoubted that Paris has fundamentally ushered in a new era on climate change. We know that it's almost a given. Um, um, it almost represents a, you know, a, a global commitment that's unprecedented in our, in our lifetimes, those of us who've been following this agenda. But what we do know is that climate change is fundamentally about supply and demand. And it's also wrapped in the politics of uh, behavior, system change, and politics. And given what's happened in our world, not least two weeks ago, not least six months ago, what we do know, one thing is a truism this year and into the next two or three years, is that the impact of the political changes that have happened in Europe and across the Atlantic are very difficult to predict in terms of what will happen on this agenda, given the global commitment that we have post-Paris. Uh, but we, what we do know is that it's going to become increasingly difficult to ensure that we have coherence, political coherence at least, on this agenda, despite the commitments that we have. But that's why it's important, I think, to have this event, where we have the World Energy Outlook. It's a heavy tome. It's the Bible. Um, it's, the, it's the document that sets out the analysis, the projections, on, and the marketplace for energy. Uh, and it provides an essential evidence base for the kind of policy choices and the investment choices we need to make in the next uh, five to ten years in particular. It sets that, that kind of grounding basis for our deliberations and that's why it's important that we have this event and that's why it's really important that, um, uh, that we have Fatih Birol with us today. Um, without a further ado, I'm going to invite Fatih to come and address you. He has a full 30 minutes, because um, it, de it deserves it, on setting out what some of the key issues are for you to consider um, as you think about the policy investment choices ahead of you. Please can I invite Fatih, who, who requires no real introduction, actually. He's a, he's a well-kent character uh, in this space. And um, as Forbes has said, you know, one of the most influential characters in um, energy matters and energy policy across the globe. Fatih, over to you. can put this aside. I know the report by heart, so I can put it aside uh, here. So. Uh, first of all, uh, very many thanks to Friends of Europe for once again inviting me to this very important, very prestigious uh, uh, meeting. And uh, thank you very much uh, uh, to Mr. Shevkovich giving us the honor to be present in uh, this uh, very important uh, meeting in Brussels where I am going to share with you some of the uh, findings of our report, how we see the global 
oil, gas, renewables trends, how the current challenges could affect those trends, and what are the implications for climate change and uh, investment. Uh, this report, once again, um, uh, is, as you mentioned, Mr. Chairman, a hefty one. Uh, and uh, I had to leave the World Energy Outlook day-to-day -day basis, and now um, uh, Lara Kozi, who is with me, together with Mr. Tim Gould, they are leading the World Energy Outlook work. And this year, after I left, the sales increased by 20% of the book. I am very happy to uh, see that. It is, of course, still the best-selling energy book in the world, but the sales increased uh, substantially. Now, when I look at the... Uh, it doesn't work exactly. Perfect. So, first, before the future, let me look at uh, today. Just a couple of points of departure, which is important for all of us to know, if we leave Europe or United States or in, 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 in Asia. Oil markets, oil prices affect all of us, all the industries. And one important fact I thought I should share with you, Middle East oil production today, the share reached to 35% last month, which is the highest in the last 40 years. After 1970s, those troubled uh, days, for the first time, it reached the highest levels, about 35%. A very important information, perhaps we may want to put this information together with what we see every day in television about what is happening in some key countries in the uh, Middle East. Gas markets, a major transformation is happening in the gas markets. I come to uh, Brussels every year to uh, 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 the President of World Energy Outlook. I remember very well, in 2009, we said a silent revolution is starting in North America at that time, giving the shale, talking about the shale revolution. That silent revolution became now uh, very loud, and now we think a second gas revolution is coming with huge amount of LNG coming to the markets. I will talk about it in a moment as well. Renewables, huge growth across the world. And uh, last year's new capacity additions from renewables in the world were higher than all others put together. So renewable capacity additions were higher than coal plus gas plus oil plus nuclear put together. And as you will see in a moment, it will continue to increase in the next years to come. Now, Paris Agreement signed, agreed, ratified everything. Now, eyes need to turn to energy sector how those pledges are going to be implemented, and if implemented, overperformance, underperformance. Why? Because to reach there, we have to fix the energy sector. More than two-thirds of the emissions causing climate change come from the energy uh, sector. So uh, I think uh, everybody who is keen to see what is happening in the climate front needs to look at the energy sector very carefully. It is what we have done at the IEA, and in this report, you will see 
We have looked all the pledges made by the countries and what does it mean for the energy sector if they are implemented. One final point before we go to journey to 2030 and 40. Still in the world, 1.3 billion people, 20% of global population, they have no electricity. They have no access to electricity. Sub-Saharan Africa, India, Pakistan, uh, uh, Bangladesh, and uh, Southeast Asia. And we think this is very important to note, leave aside the economics and the moral, some of the decisions in those countries which fuel to choose for the next power plants may need to be made only and exclusively on the basis of cost, because getting electricity is a very immediate request or demand of the people rather than think about sustainable development and the others. So putting the things in a perspective and putting the perspective of those people. Now, in our report, we have different policy assumptions, different uh, policies, and where we will go uh, from here will be determined by the governments and government's strategies. And I can tell you that uh, I am one of those, as uh, uh, Mr. Shevkovich, who travels a lot. And Europe is much better equipped in terms of strategy compared to many other parts of the world having here the energy union. Well prepared. At least in terms of concepts, the successful completion of uh, energy union will address energy security, climate change, and having affordable prices. And I have done it in many places, many times, but once again, I want to congratulate the, the Commission putting energy union in a strong way, in such a comprehensive way. I know many hurdles are still there, including implementation of the energy union, but still, compared to other parts of the world, it's a very strategic, a very uh, comprehensive uh, package to follow, and as such, in my view, can be an example to many countries across the world as a source of inspiration. Now, looking at today, from today moving to future, but before the future, one thing about the past again. Something is, I will talk about the fuels, oil, gas, etc. but one number I find it very interesting as, a, as, a, a, as an economist, as an energy person who makes his hands dirty with data. In the last 25 years, global energy increased by 60%. Okay, in 25 years, 60%. And in the next 25 years, we expect global energy demand to increase by 30%. In the last 25 years, global economy increased about 3.4% per year on average, and our expectation for the future is more or less the same. It means, Energy demand with the same economic environment will grow half what it did in the last 25 years. It is very important to note underlying, understanding the role of energy efficiency here. It is a, I will talk about different fuels, but for me the first fuel is energy efficiency. 
Then you have the frame with energy efficiency, then put different colors of oil, of gas, or coal. Number one. Number two, when you look at the last 25 years, the clear winner by far was coal. Okay, you may think whatever you like, but this is the number, what happened. When we look at the next 25 years, in our main scenario, which is based on the Paris pledges are implemented scenario, we see coal grow barely, oil continues to grow, but not even closer to what it did in the last 25 years. Gas, strong growth, continue to grow, but the champion is by far low carbon technologies. And this is not the two degree scenario, this is the Paris pledges scenario, which brings you to a 2.7 degrees Celsius temperature increase in the year 2100. Out of low carbon, the biggest chunk is renewables, led by solar and wind. Nuclear does play a role, especially coming from Asia, especially from China, but the biggest growth comes from renewable uh, energies. So, and this is one important, in my view, the champion is renewable. Second, the, when you look at the countries, it is coming almost everywhere, from China to Africa, from US to Europe and the rest of the world. So therefore, our World Energy Outlook, this is 700 pages report, if I have to summarize with one line, the growth story is renewables, followed by natural gas uh, and energy efficiency in my uh, view. Now, every year we focus on a fuel, and this year we made an analysis on uh, renewable energies. So, last year, World Energy Outlook 2015, I presented here, which was again hosted by Friends of Europe, we have seen a major increase in solar and wind. This year, we even increase the growth what we have taught last year, both for solar and wind. Why? For the following reason. In China, there is a 13-year, five-year plan and a very iron target, growth target, with all supporting mechanisms. And in the United States, last December, in the Congress, there was a tax credit to make the life easier for wind and solar. Two major policies let us uh, our renewable projection to increase substantially, but there is a still a big room renewables to grow if we want to, to go to a two degrees trajectory. So, 2.7, in other words, the Paris pledges, in other words, our main scenario sees a major increase of renewables, but this is not enough. There is still need more to be done if we go to more radical to two degrees uh, scenario. So this is, of course, a very good uh, news from a renewables perspective, from a, a energy security, from climate, and so on. But the growth in renewables don't come with some implications. And one of the implications uh, what we see is the Vandy share of renewables in a power mix go beyond higher than 30%, you may well have some 
challenges in the system. You need to take some measures as, you, uh, as our report in detail analyzed in terms of the demand side management or uh, storage, or you may need to look at the, the other type of investments, for example, gas-fired power plants to company renewables. Otherwise, there may well be the case that both the security of electricity and, as well, some of the investments may be idled. Too much generation, not enough demand. And our report shows in detail this curtailment issue that the, uh, you will see lots of uh, hours, weeks, months uh, may well be the loss producers for the companies if the necessary measures to integrate the renewables in the best way are not put in place. Again on renewables, we have a big success story in electricity generation. This is my main message coming from our report. We see that the strong penetration of renewables in electricity generation, very good. But we don't see and we don't talk much about the two other areas that the renewables can penetrate. One of them is heat. The other one is the transportation sector. And we see that in our report, they grow, but not strong enough. Heat, lots of room for industry, boilers, significant room for uh, heating at home, the, uh, the uh, warmth, uh, comfort, uh, comfort, and also in the context of transport, direct or indirect use of uh, renewables either through biofuels or electric vehicles getting electricity from uh, 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 renewables. So for me, the first chapter successfully being completed, integration of or penetration of renewables of the electric sector, and the next one is now to find room for renewables in heat and transport. Unfortunately, they are not as preferred options for many governments. Today, we look at more than 150 governments across the world have supporting policies for renewables and electricity, but for heat and transport, it is very few. And in fact, we talk about solar PV a lot. We should even talk more, but when I look at the numbers, amount of energy produced by solar water heaters today worldwide is two times the energy we get from solar PV. Okay, so there is a, a very important uh, issue there, very important opportunity there. Now, renewables are doing fine and will do even better in the future. I move to another subject, which is, in our opinion, still very important and really important many years to come, energy security, both for oil and gas. What we are saying is energy security is and will be maybe more important in the next years to come. Don't be faked by the low energy prices today. But the good news is we have now, compared to previous years, we have more policy tools in hand 
to address energy security. For example, I just came here from the uh, United States. I told the, the, uh, my colleagues that in the U.S., you know, oil import dependency is a major topic in all presidential elections. And U.S., in our analysis, show that the U.S. is uh, almost independent very soon of oil imports. But the reason here is, unlike some politicians may think, not only to increase the domestic oil production, but more to reduce the domestic consumption, oil consumption, as a result of efficiency policies for cars and trucks. So why you are depending on oil in another country? Because you produce less oil at home and you consume a lot of oil at home. So in US, we are seeing the oil production is increasing. At the same time, consumption is put downward pressure as a result of the cafe standards put by the current administration a few years ago, which is reducing the oil consumption, as well as they are making more use of uh, renewable energies in biofuels and others. The rest of the world is the same in terms of oil. We have more tools, efficiency, renewables, and others. In the EU context, gas is a very important uh, fuel when it comes to security. And here, two things I want to mention. Before coming here, I look at the numbers. In EU, in the last 10 years, number of households we have increased by 20 million. We have 20 million more households. And the GDP per capita is increasing. Normally, heat demand, therefore the gas demand for heat, needs to increase because the number of households is increasing, because the uh, uh, gas is there to be uh, used as the first fuel. But when we look at the numbers, EU gas demand for heat for households is declining slightly, better than flat. And here the main reason is, we made an uh, analysis here, the main reason is because of efficiency. Efficiency makes the, your building much more efficient with retrofitting, renovation, and at the same time, efficiency directives for boilers, making them more efficient, uh, brings this, in my view, excellent result. Efficiency is a very important friend of gas security. Second, renewables. Growth of renewables also had an impact on reducing the imported gas, especially for electricity generation. So the message is our message in Washington uh, last week and uh, here in Brussels and tomorrow I go to Tokyo. You have, okay, if you take energy security seriously, of course look at the increase in domestic production, but look at the energy efficiency and renewables, what kind of role they can play. Since we talk about oil, our message on oil is we are entering a great oil price volatility period. Why? When we look at the numbers, 
Investments are declining. We have seen two years in a row, 2015 and 16, global oil investments are in a decline. And last year, and this year as well, number of oil we discovered worldwide volumes is lower, the lowest since 1960s. Number of new projects we approved for new oil production fields, lowest since 1950s. And if we see 2017 oil investment decline one more year, we may well have some difficulties in the markets in the next few uh, years because the gap is becoming much bigger and this gap is going to benefit from the U.S. shale oil to come, but this may not be good enough. So therefore, three years investment, oil investment declining, may well have implications on the oil markets in the next few years. And this is something we told the, our member countries and uh, all other uh, stakeholders. So, uh, U.S. shale oil is uh, very good. Uh, it can come to the markets with the oil prices close to $60 in a big time, but you still need, when the prices go up, you still need 9 to 12 months, roughly, them to react and to come to the market. Therefore, this boom and bust cycles will continue. Major producers react, push the prices up, U.S. shale oil becomes profitable, bring a lot of oil to the markets, put the pressure on the downward pressure on the prices, so lots of volatility coming to the markets, and this is something that the governments need to be careful to prepare their economies to this big volatility of the prices, both importing countries and exporting countries. And some of them are already doing. Saudi Arabia came up with some, some of you might have heard. Saudi vision for 2030, which is basically aiming to broaden the economic base of Saudi Arabia, moving away only from oil. When I say oil, on the demand side, <coughs> perhaps again, some of you might have read, there is a discussion in the last few weeks, perhaps months, many colleagues say, we see global oil demand is peaking. We had a few colleagues, some of them are with us, saying that global supply was peaking. Now, some colleagues are saying global oil demand is peaking. And this includes some of the oil companies, OPEC itself, World Bank. In a, our main scenario, which is again based on the pledges of Paris, we do not see the peak of oil demand. Because many of the colleagues say, what is happening in the car industry today means oil demand is speaking. We don't agree with it. Why? Very simple. We see oil demand declining in power generation. In Middle East, we use a lot of oil for electricity generation, which is economically criminal, but they are doing and it's going to be less and less. We are going to see less oil for heating in the buildings. It's going to be replaced. And we are going to see passenger cars demand, 
compared to today, is declining. And this is very interesting because today we have 1 billion cars worldwide. In 2040, it's about 2 billion. So the number of cars will double, and we will lose less oil in 2040 compared to today, even though the number of cars double. Why? Mainly, once again, energy efficiency. Car fuel efficiency, but also electric cars, biofuels, and others. So if it is so, why the IEA says, why the World Energy Outlook says that oil demand is continuing to grow? Because many colleagues said, the, uh, the uh, working on this issue, very, our, our uh, argument is based on the very fact that the oil demand growth is not coming from cars. It comes from trucks, jets, and petrochemical industry. It is where the growth is. If you look at the television, when they show oil prices, only the cars in the street, then you have to make further analysis. Let me give you one number. About one-third of the oil demand growth comes from the trucks in developing Asia only. Let me repeat. One-third of the global oil demand growth comes from the trucks in developing Asia. And in most cases, they don't have any visible efficiency standards. And they are going, growing very strongly. So, therefore, from an oil market's point of view, from an emissions point of view, cars are important, but they are not the only driver of the oil demand growth. Moving to another point, gas markets, LNG. I said we are seeing a second gas revolution, which is driven by the huge number of LNG coming to the markets. And as a result of that, we see share of LNG increasing significantly. There are now several LNG projects coming to their completion in Australia and United States, very soon followed by uh, Canada, Mozambique, Tanzania, and others. As a result of that, we see early 2020s, substantial of amount of uncontracted LNG in the markets, and this will have many implications. I will give you two of them. One for the LNG industry. We expect there will be much more flexibility in the pricing, in the contracts. For example, final destination class, something that uh, many LNG contracts have today. They may need to get a second look in many cases. More flexibility and making the hands of the importers stronger vis-a-vis -vis exporters. It's number one. Number two. In the context of uh, Europe, it is important to note that a substantial amount of European long-term gas contracts, close to 90 BCM, are coming to an end early 2020s, 23, 24, and I think uh, LNG can well be an option 
to make use of. You may either get LNG if you have the facilities and the interconnections, of course, again, coming back to the energy union. But even if you don't have it, if you don't want to get LNG, you can use the LNG when negotiating with the major exporter as an alternative. So this second uh, uh, revolution definitely is something that we need to make use of, we believe, at the IEA, especially from the importing countries' point of view. And as I said, gas together with renewables are the main winners of the next 25 years. Coal, very important for many reasons. And this is the coal consumption today. Half of the global coal is used by China. But looking forward, we see coal consumption in China is going to decline. I should say continue to decline because we, in the last two years, we already see this trend coming. And U.S. declining mainly because of the economics reason and in uh, Europe. But there are other parts of the world which are growing substantially. Mainly India, a very, big, uh, uh, a very strong growth, also Southeast uh, Asia. And in sum, in total, we expect, as I said in the beginning, coal demand is barely growing, flat, and losing market share. Final point on climate change, uh, coming to the end of my time. We look at, the, as I said, all the pledges made by the countries across the world. So what does it mean for energy sector? So what we see is that if all these pledges are implemented, there is an if there, I want to underline this, if, if all these pledges are implemented, we see a trajectory, as I said, which is in line with a 2.7 degrees Celsius temperature increase. But what we would like to see is, in fact, a two degrees, at least a two degrees temperature increase, a maximum of two degrees temperature increase. And here, the first condition, according to our analysis, looking at the energy infrastructure, around 2020, emissions need to peak. And later on, towards the end of the century, there should be net zero. And to go there, from the current pledges to the two degrees, we have to make first radical policy changes to reach the first condition, meet the first condition, peaking of emissions 2020. But we can do it with the existing technologies, but the right policies need to be put in place. And uh, later on, we need other technologies to be part of the game, in addition to renewables, in addition to the efficiency, new technologies ranging from, according to country, carbon capture storage, to the demand side uh, technologies, maybe electric cars, getting the electricity from renewable sources, or uh, nuclear power in the countries where it is accepted, but we need uh, all of them. In our report, we also look at what does it mean, as it is stated in Paris, well below two degrees, and you will see that the, what needs to be done there is uh, very uh, strong policies are needed to reach those targets. So, if I can uh, go to and finish my presentation by saying that we think energy security is still important, both for oil and gas, 
a major preoccupation. Don't, fix, don't fixate your uh, energy security preoccupations to the price changes. Prices are low, energy security is no problem. Or in Europe, just in, at the end of the year, energy security is important. The other uh, 10 months, not important. Energy security, gas security is always very important. We should be well prepared. But good news is we have now new tools to address energy security in addition to the existing ones, namely energy efficiency and uh, renewables. Now the new oil market dynamics and the declining investment mean for us and the shale oil coming to the picture, we will see a lot of volatility in the oil markets in the next years to come. Lots of LNG is coming, a big wave, and this may well provide a lot of opportunities for uh, the uh, importing countries, and there may be a need for the gas exporters to look at their demands more carefully, otherwise they may well risk losing some clients. Renewables, a big success story in terms of electricity generation. The first chapter is successful, but the next chapter is not only built on in the power sector, increasing share of renewables, but to make use for heat and also for uh, transportation. And here, as I mentioned, the integration is very important of renewables in the electricity in the best way and uh, how do we do it? And it is the reason why we have dedicated a lot of work on the integration at the IEA. Finally, Paris Agreement is a wonderful framework. And how we go from here will be depending on the government uh, policies. And here uh, I have one appeal to Brussels. I am coming to Brussels for this view presentation many, many years. I remember 10 years ago, when we talk about climate change, I praise our European colleagues for being the champion of fight against climate change. They did perfectly when nobody was around. Then in the last few years, I praise my colleagues in Brussels for the great climate diplomacy, bringing many other important nations and governments around them. It was a very important diplomacy, not only diplomacy, but by the actions they are doing, they became example and also uh, leader of the fight against climate change. Europe's excellent work was one of the pillars of the Paris Agreement. And I mentioned it in the last few years all the time. Now, we are entering a challenging time for the climate policy. I again appeal my colleagues in Brussels, in these difficult times, we need you, the world needs you, and if you need our help, we are there as the IEA. Thank you.
Colleagues, I'm sure you'll agree that was hugely informative and insightful. Um, of the many messages I took away from that is the, the interesting um, key point about energy efficiency and renewables. And it creates, I think, huge policy challenges as you move ahead and business modelling as you move ahead and the investment choices that are made. Because it's quite an interesting tale that, it, that efficiency can be the game changer, which we didn't expect it to be. Um, when we thought about this agenda 10 years ago in particular. And the, the, the praise that you've heaped on the European Commission um, obviously is important, it's, given it's the largest trading bloc, and also I think the recent data has shown that you can do good on climate change in your carbon emissions as well as achieve economic growth and have an impact on GDP. So our latest data actually creates the business case for this agenda. But as ever... Politics is what drives a lot of this as well, as we know. But on that note, I'd like to introduce our next speaker. Marosh, I've got very really happy to, for you to be here um, and for you to set out your perspective and reaction to the report. Thank you very much. Th thank you very much, uh, dear Danendra, dear Fatih, dear colleagues on the panel, but especially your colleagues, uh, ladies and gentlemen, who came to listen to Fatih because it's always very fascinating uh, to listen to somebody who presents such a thick book in uh, 30 minutes and to still keep the promise that every World Energy Outlook will be in Galatasaray colors. I really have to <laughs> send a lot of compliments to Fatih that how he always manages uh, to do that. And I also would like to thank him for this insight, for the deep uh, analysis, uh, uh, which we very much uh, share with him. And I want to thank him here publicly for very close uh, cooperation and excellent uh, relationship we developed over the years because uh, we very much value the expertise, the input, the contribution, the, uh, the, the, edge, uh, the world energy outlook is bringing also to our policymaking and to our discussion. So if you allow me to comment on some of the, uh, some of the findings, I think the first what was uh, of course very important to say and we uh, totally agree uh, that uh, energy efficiency should clearly be seen as a fuel source on its own. We believe that this is the cleanest, safest, greenest source we could have, and therefore you will see in our upcoming proposals that the energy efficiency first principle we want to deploy across the board. And uh, I'm also very thankful to, to Fatih to highlight the fact that uh, despite all the efforts we do in uh, the renewables, in uh, the energy efficiency that uh, we still have uh, uh, a lot to do in this transformational phase, in this transitional f uh, phase where, uh, as uh, uh, we have seen, also some challenges uh, being uh, indicated uh, uh, ahead of us. So all that uh, caution, if it comes to the oil market, uh, very interesting description of uh, the gas uh, uh, revolution, which we consider in the European Commission as a very important uh, uh, transition fuel because it's a very good match uh, for uh, renewables, but also that very optimistic uh, perspective uh, on the renewables and on uh, the potential the renewables are bringing with them with the constant modernization, uh, drop of the costs and, and the need uh, to find a way how to integrate them better in uh, our systems. Um, I think that what was uh, very novel in uh, this year's report was the fact that Fatih and his colleagues uh, just uh, look what the Paris means, 
where we should go if we want to go to the 2%, and Fatih didn't have enough time to elaborate also on so-called uh, 450 scenario, what it would mean as a first assessment if you want to go below two degrees, so-called aspirational goal, which uh, was included into the Paris Agreement on the last minute and which, of course, presents uh, enormous challenge. I think this was very important from the point of view just to see how uh, big challenges are ahead of us. And if it comes to the planning of our future actions, that uh, we can hardly afford any mistakes, and we need to get uh, our uh, act uh, uh, together. And I also want to uh, thank him for his kind words about uh, our policies, about our decision-making, and, and uh, our uh, uh, strong efforts to embrace the fight against climate change and energy and climate policies in this holistic way with uh, the outlook until 2030, 2050, and what we hope and believe will be carbon neutral second half of this century. It's not easy. Uh, not always we get uh, the, the praise for that, so thank you very much. And uh, what I want to say is that also in the course of action you have seen since we introduced the energy union, you, you could see how much we are working across all the five dimensions of the energy union. I think it was uh, quite... Uh, important what uh, Fatih underlined uh, about uh, the security of supply, be it electricity, be it oil, and be it gas. And uh, therefore, I would also use the Trump platform to appeal to our colleagues in the council, in the parliament, uh, to uh, work uh, even with a greater uh, vigor to make sure that proposals we put on uh, the table under the security of supply package, be it uh, uh, the strong pressure on the transparency of the intergovernmental agreement and commercial contracts are very important because the beginning of the next decades there will be the huge uh, renegotiations. The LNG strategy and need for interconnections within Europe so we can actually use that potential which was already built in Europe would be very important uh, as well. But coming closer to the Paris, I think that we've been very strong supporter of uh, fight against uh, climate change, exactly as Fatih uh, mentioned that uh, a few years ago we kind of felt as a lonely climate warrior. And we've been so relieved that all that huge effort, all that uh, uh, diplomatic outreach, all the lobbying we did across the, uh, the, the globe and excellent French presidency uh, brought us to the Paris Agreement which really is a historic achievement, and I think today we are very glad that the uh, European Union was again the actor which helped this agreement to enter in, into force well ahead of the schedule. And I think today we are very pleased that it has happened, because now we have an agreement which is valid, and uh, we will have a discussions which would uh, devolve from the fact that this is already agreement which was signed, approved, and ratified. And I hope that all actors, including our friends across the Atlantic, would treat it uh, in the same way. As uh, it was usual for, for Europe, also this time, we showed that uh, we mean business. When we take the commitment, when we undertake a pledge, we immediately transform it in the legislative proposals and in the binding legislation. This you have seen with our ETS proposals the last year, and this you have seen in our proposals in the summer, where we've been tackling 
the challenge of reduction of greenhouse gas emissions from non-ETS sector through so-called effort-sharing decision for transport, for agriculture, and uh, for increase of uh, energy efficiency in our buildings. We included also our communication on uh, the low emission mobility in Europe because we believe that it uh, presents a big challenge. So that figure, uh, which Fatih mentioned, that uh, he expects that there will be 2 billion cars uh, on this planet, clearly leads us and points us to the direction we all must take and that if these cars will be on our roads, they have to be low emission or zero emission cars because otherwise, not our planet, but our species, our mankind will not survive. Therefore, when I'm uh, talking with our car industry, what I'm highlighting to them is the fact that we need to deploy enormous effort to be sure that the most modern technologies, that uh, uh, our patents uh, in the field of uh, e-mobility and uh, e-cars are very important for the future. And uh, therefore, when we see that uh, if we are number one in combustion engines number of patents, we should be the same in the electric engines. And this is not the case. And I know that car industry is noticing that they are working on this, uh, uh, on this challenge as well. But as Fatih said, uh, a lot depends on, on politics. A lot depends on regulators. And therefore, I'm very glad to say that I just came here from, from the meetings where we are doing our utmost uh, to finalize uh, what uh, some of you called winter package. I call it jumbo package because it will be uh, uh, such a group of proposals which we want to present uh, within a couple of uh, weeks, I hope a couple of days. What we want to do is uh, to present uh, the comprehensive uh, proposal which would mean that 90% of what we promised we would do under the action plan in the energy union will be on the table, will be before the legislators in the European Parliament and uh, in the Council, meaning the member states. We will deliver our package on energy efficiency. We will propose how we can make sure that we measure the energy performance of our buildings in a more, more modern way. We are working hard in, in proposing new ways how this could be financed, and we will be looking for the, uh, for the new methods, how we can include uh, the member states in developing even stronger financing tools uh, uh, in this respect uh, for the future. We will uh, present our proposals on eco-design and eco-labeling, and I'm very glad that Fatih mentioned this enormous, enormous potential uh, the eco-labeling and eco-design is bringing uh, to the economy, and the fact that through these measures we already are saving that much of energy. Sometimes this is forgotten, uh, unfortunately, especially in certain sectors of uh, journalist community, and I always try to remember that thanks to these measures, before 2020, we will save as much energy as is consumed by Italy in one year. That's a lot of energy which we save thanks to eco-design, eco-labeling, and therefore we are absolutely convinced that we need to present uh, even better uh, well-measured uh, proposals next time. And of course, the last part of this package will be very much built around uh, new electricity market design because Fatih was very correct uh, in saying that uh, we need to find the ways how we can integrate the renewables better in our system, that we would adjust uh, 
the trading in a way that uh, there will be much more flexibility in the system, that you would actually reward flexibility and storing of the energy, that you would find the ways how we could do this intraday uh, training, uh, trading uh, with uh, electricity, that it would put a lot of emphasis on demand side management, which could help us in, in many respects to optimize uh, uh, the, the electricity in our uh, grid system that we would motivate the member states to look for the solutions also across the borders, to look uh, uh, at it from the regional po point of view. And this, I'm sure, would have very positive impact of a lot of savings uh, which we could achieve if uh, we would be much more reasonable if it comes to the capacity markets and, and capacity mechanisms. And all this uh, is being uh, currently worked on. We want to accompany it with a new directive on renewables, with a robust proposal on governance, because all this, what I'm explaining to you, um, uh, will remain on the legislative proposals if we are not able to implement it. So we want to have a strong tool to make sure that these proposals are implemented. Therefore, part of the package will be also legislative proposals on governance, which we want to build around national energy and climate plans, where we want to see public discussions in our member states, where we want to see uh, the ambitions uh, reflected and where we want uh, uh, to promote strong regional and uh, European uh, cooperation. Last thing I would say, we also understand that this is the new way how our regulators in Europe should work and therefore we will be bringing also some modification and changes uh, for the work of agency, for the cooperation of European regulators because all this has to go head in hand. So what I want to say is that uh, we are working on a package which is very ambitious, uh, which would be quite a long read. Therefore, I definitely hope that we will deliver it before Christmas so you, you know how to spend your Christmas break. And uh, we want to come early next year with the State of the uh, Energy Union, the second uh, edition, and start uh, the new Energy Union tour where we want to discuss national energy and climate plans, all this very important transformation in our member states. And the last statement I would like to make, it goes exactly uh, to the last uh, remark Fatih made. I think that uh, in Paris we achieved a, a historic milestone. And I think we have to keep up the momentum. Euro was at the origin of the fight against uh, uh, climate change and uh, Europe will be the leader in uh, this respect, uh, despite whatever developments we'll see across the Atlantic. I believe that people in the end will adopt the rational decision. I think that the uh, United States of America been the place where we see the most weather-related disasters over the last 10 years. So it's a stark reminder that climate change is happening. So Fatih, we are here, we are staying, and we'll be definitely working on the fight against climate change. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. No one underestimates your job at all. And um, I think everyone's going to look forward to reading the winter package with interest, especially in the political context we find ourselves in Europe. Um, but um, I think it's going to be a fine balance of the carrot and the stick, especially in these political times that we live in. But I'm sure people have questions of that. Colleagues, you've been really uh, patient. You've had 40 minutes of people speaking to you. I want to give you the opportunity for a quick-fire reaction. Um, if you've got um, a burning issue you want to raise or a, a reaction to what you've heard, I would like to give you the opportunity uh, to say something from the floor. What I'm going to say is that I'm not going to ask the panel to respond or I'm not going to ask the two speakers 
because you've heard to respond to the questions. They can park them for a bit later, but I do want to get you to let you have the opportunity just to respond. So um, any, and what I'd like is, and I plead with you, given that we've, now you all know the time, we've only got half an hour left, just over, that's it. So if we live as a community within that time, I ask you to have your comments very sharp and short, please. Um, so lady in the front here. Sandrine Dixon de Clef, Chief Partnership Officer of Sustainable Energy for All. We've worked a lot with the IA with regard to access, so I just want to throw the issue out there in terms of clean energy access, which is our objective, as we continue to grow economically and we see the developments, just to see from the other panelists what their thoughts in terms of enhancing access to clean energy. European Union is showing leadership, but we need to see leadership in Africa, Southeast Asia, and other regions. Thank you. Uh, University, Sweden. Uh, thank you, Dr. Birol, for a great report this year. And, and uh, I think it's important to, for people to read the details in, in, in the report. I mean, the tables are showing where, from where should the supply come in the future, you know, because, because uh, if you look at the table uh, 3.11, for instance, you realize that, that uh, it, it's needed a lot of new discoveries. And you said the discovery was so low now, but and it, in fact, it is, it is as low as it was in the 1920s. And, and uh, uh, this discovery will not produce the oil from the new fields that you have in reports. I mean, so, so in principle, what you're saying already is that the demand you put up that is very important for the policymakers to have will never be fulfilled with the real production if you look into it. And, and uh, thank you for just saying those numbers because people need to read them. Thank you. Anyone on this side? At the back? Come you people at the back? Don't be shy. No? Really? Okay, I'll take the gentleman over here. I had his hand up. So I'm Claude Thomas, member of European Parliament. Um, thank you for both, I think, to Fatih and to uh, Mr. Savkovic to have put energy efficiency first. I think it's so important for uh, policymakers, for, for everybody to understand that it is energy efficiency which will uh, be a big game changer. On renewables, um, we are in a big fight in this moment with Commission. Uh, Commission is completely emptying the existing renewable directive. It was interesting, Maros, that you didn't even mention renewables, hardly. You speak about market organization, you don't speak about renewables number one. So my fear is this explosion, this growing export market, I want Europe to be a major player in that. And if we don't have a relevant home market and our 27% is basically reducing the volume deployed, and it's not patents in Europe alone which will save us. If we don't have a vivid home market I'm afraid that after having lost the solar industry, we will lose the wind industry, and that will not be a good message. Thank you. Thank you for all three. Um, those are consistent issues that have come up over time, especially about, you know, green and then, you know, what happens to the mix of energy, but also the point about if you've got a tradition of innovation, how do you bring it to scale and market and actually make sure that you're able to move in the direction that's required. I'm going to stop there now. Thank you very much. Sorry for those of you who had your hands up, but I'm conscious of time. I'm going to move to our panel. Um, of speakers. We have uh, an interesting uh, set uh, before you. They all have five minutes each and then we'll go into uh, a Q&A &A with yourselves again. We do have some quotes though. I'm wondering if we can just have them up now.
from our citizens. So we have a, a debating uh, platform called Debating Europe, which reaches into over 2 million unique users, um, and we debate everything with them, everything from you know, climate change to the burkini. And what we wanted to do is just raise some of the kind of key issues from citizens um, on this agenda. So you'll see um, from Stefan an issue that's very you know, relevant to the political change that's taking place at the uh, over the uh, Atlantic. We then have another uh, moving on. Yannick, who refers to um, Paris being a baby step. So these are, don't forget, these are the views of citizens from across Europe. And then finally, again, another reference to the fact that Paris is a little, little too late um, and we really need to make much more urgent efforts. So we wanted to make sure we kind of reference the voice of citizens in, 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 our, in our events, and you'll see more of that as we move on. But it was, it's, it's a nice framer for this the, uh, panel you're, which you're about to receive. And so firstly, I'd like to introduce Jane um, to um, discuss with you um, her thoughts and perspectives on this agenda. But just worth so I'll saying that Jane is one of our European young leaders. So we have a program of European young leaders where we bring 40 established um, leaders from across Europe, from across sector, to come together and offer a very different vantage point of leadership on issues of the day, both in politics and policy making. So, without further ado, Jane, to you first. Thank you very much, Damendra. Um, and although I work for Science Lab, I actually am not prepared to battle with Fatty on the facts. Uh, there's plenty in there. And what, what I thought I could do is talk a bit more about the potential disruptions or tipping points that we may see. We may not, uh, but we may. And I think, you know, given what's happened politically, not least in the UK, uh, but not only in the UK, over the last few months, I don't need to convince anybody that the unexpected can happen um, and it can have a really large impact on how we work going forward. So uh, I was going to share with you three different potential tipping points, some of which we can choose, some of which I feel like we're already on the cusp of. Um, the first one is what I think is the beginning of the second revolution of emissions trading. Um, if we look back 10 years, the European emissions trading scheme was starting to work well in earnest. You know, five years further on from that, we had countries that represented more than 50% of global greenhouse gas emissions starting to pilot, test out, plan uh, emissions trading schemes in states in the U.S., but five years on from then, uh, today, we're in a situation where although China is about to implement its own national emissions trading scheme next year, the European trading scheme and, and that in the US is not working as well as we had hoped. So I think Europe actually has the chance to really move the dial on this one. And if we can make meaningful change now by rebaselining emissions from the start of phase four, then we can really push towards the global carbon price by the 2030s. Um, the second tipping point is, I, I might describe it as the beginning of the end of the fossil fuel lobby. Um, I went to a, a conference the other day on transformation at the grid edge, so change, changes in the electricity grid. And uh, there's lots of interesting content, but one of the most interesting things for me was the audience, the makeup of the audience. Uh, obviously, because there's huge leaps in the electrification of transportation and heat, there's lots of opportunities there for not the usual suspects. 
And then as well, if you look at demand management and energy storage, the kinds of companies that are thinking about this are not companies that we would usually associate with the energy sector. There's companies that sell large-scale cold storage to supermarkets that are now starting to think about using that for grid balancing. Um, the computing companies are looking at the uses of big data for managing the grid. And there's lots of opportunities for startups, there's lots of opportunities for incumbents, but one of the things that really struck me was the presence of new multinationals, multinationals from computing, transportation, uh, the food sector, that haven't ever before really uh, talked about themselves as part of the energy sector. Those companies are very good at lobbying. They already have existing skills. They know how to get what they want. And what they want is different than what the fossil fuel lobby necessarily wants. So I think that they have a huge potential to move the dial on decentralization and the pricing of flexible options alongside generation. The final one actually goes to the, the point that was made over here from the audience about uh, the future that Europe could play in the production of renewables, both um, for domestic and for export. Working for uh, a science and technology lab, we see lots of advances in robotics and advanced manufacturing that aren't specifically for the manufacture of new energy technologies, but could be applied to it. And I think those kinds of things maybe aren't built into projections at the moment of the reduction in cost of new renewables. Um, the kinds of things that I'm thinking about are 3D printing, and it's early stages, but the US Department of Energy has started looking at 3D printing uh, the molds for wind turbine blades because it's quicker, it uses less material, fewer man hours to make. Um, there's blockchain and lots of different uses of blockchain for uh, transactions, neighborhood-based transactions of local generation. And then there's things like inline verification. There's future technologies that we could use for energy access also, for, brilliant in fact, for things like uh, refugee camps, um, things like uh, thin film, solar PV. And at the moment, part of the reason that technologies like that are being held back is because of the, the lack of scale-up of production. So advances in manufacturing, advances in inline verification of these technologies so you can check that they're at high quality as they're being produced could be something that could reduce the cost quite considerably and could keep Europe at the forefront of producing the next generation of new renewables. Jane, thank you very much. You kept it in the five minutes as well. Thank you very much. I'm sure there'll be a lot of reaction, or perhaps a lot, uh, some interesting reaction to um, your point about the ETS revolution. I'll wait, wait and see what, how that's picked up. Um, I'm going to move on to Eric, um, a very important player in this field from a supply uh, side a point of view, but we're very pleased to have you here to share your thoughts um, in response to both the report, but the context you're in at the moment. Thank you. Congratulations to the IEA again with a new publication. New data, updated scenarios. Note with pleasure that you're getting closer to our scenarios and important variables. Um, I'm not going to discuss the details in your scenarios, but I, I want to remind the audience that a lot of the things that we're talking about in terms of fantastic technological developments are absolutely necessary in order to achieve the energy efficiency assumptions that both IEA and other scenario makers do. We cannot get there without those types of technology changes that we all talk about. And that's before we talk about the fuel mix changes. 
the report highlights a number of challenges in the global energy system. First of all, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, providing clean and affordable energy for all. Fatih reminded us of the 1.2 billion without access to electricity. We had a comment here on, on the more than 2 billion people that lack access to clean and affordable energy. Um, I dare to say that if this meeting took place in Delhi today, the discussion would probably be slightly different. Um, we need to invest 67 to 75 trillion dollars in energy, depending on which scenario you decide to believe in. Now that has to take place in a situation where the business models and the framework conditions are unknown, both in terms of renewable investments and in terms of fossil fuel investments. And the recent decline in oil investments is a clear warning signal about the challenges in order to ensure sufficient investments. Cost reductions in renewables give us a hope for parts of the transition, though subsidies will continue to grow to 2030 in that sector as well. And given the decline rates that we are facing anyway, remember that investments in new oil and gas must be much larger than the investments in renewable electricity. And the geopolitical situation doesn't help. A world of sanctions, unrest and conflict around multinational agreements and economic unions, regional conflicts and threats of trade wars could delay the move towards the necessary changes. To solve energy poverty, to address climate change, to deliver on sustainable energy, sustainable development goals, that require cooperation. Technology exchange, not sanctions. It requires burden sharing. Somebody has to pay for the changes taking place in the emerging economies. And it requires globally efficient solutions. And the current rivalry between the global powers and within countries reduces the likelihood of reaching these common goals. And in order to ensure the necessary investments in renewables and in oil and gas, we need those conflict levels to decline. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's impressive. Less than five minutes. Not that this is a kind of a competition at all, I assure you. But any time that we can gain is the boon. But thank you very much. We now move to, last but not least, um, Jenny, um, the business and consumer perspective. Over to you. Thank you very much, and thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, as you said, I will give you a, a quick insight in how we think as a company owned 100% by the Swedish state and also what our customers tell us. So we have a clear strategic direction where we're really committed in doing our part to reach CO2 neutrality in our business. And this should be reached at the latest 2050, but we're looking into measures on how to achieve that earlier. And in the Nordic parts of our operation, we have a target for 2030 regarding CO2 neutral neutrality. One important part of this is, of course, growth in renewables. And in order to do that, we need to continue to reduce costs in large-scale projects. And please let me refer to a very recent example, bringing down costs in the wind industry, where Danish Kriegsflak uh, is the new industry benchmark for the time being, with 49.9 euros per megawatt hour. And I can assure you that we will continue to focus on massive cost reductions regarding uh, wind operations. Another very important part is to explore new decentral solutions together with our customers. 
There is no doubt that we also see an increased demand from their perspective when it comes to new energy solutions, and I will come back to that as well. And naturally, this will require new innovations and technology, as we heard about earlier, and that we succeed in embracing the benefits of uh, digitalization. So we do see many opportunities in the new energy landscape, although the margins of many of new projects are squeezed. So we're rapidly doing our best to change and evolve and reshape our business models so that we can operate in the new market. And I would also like to point out that to support us and the society, society efficiently in this transition, we are a strong supporter of a more ambitious EU climate policy and also a stronger ETS. Another example that I want to point out is that we cooperate uh, a lot with the cities where we operate and are active in order to help them to reach their sustainability targets. And one important part of our business for that is district heating that can definitely provide a substantial contribution to decarbonization. Over 30 of Vattenfall's heating and power plants are powered entirely or partially by biomass. In Uppsala, in Sweden, for example, we're planning a new heating plant in which peat and oil will be replaced by biomass and biofuels. And that way we can significantly reduce carbon emissions in Uppsala city, which is highly appreciated by the stakeholders and the city. Of course, we should source our biomass from sustainably managed forests. And we use byproducts from the forest industry, mainly originating from Sweden, and recycled wastewood. And having said that, we believe biomass is a very suitable renewable heating source. And I'd like to point out also that we think that an improved EU bioenergy sustainability policy should include European binding sustainability criteria for solid biomass. Those are crucial for the credibility of the energy sector as well as creating a good development for the biomass market. We also welcome the EU approach towards a circular economy that promotes an efficient use of resources. The waste hierarchy should be applied and the EU should promote easy recycling. However, for non-biodegradable waste, energy recovery should be an accepted waste treatment method. When you've come to the last step of the waste hierarchy, energy recovery is better than landfill. And finally, cooperation with partners and customers is key. And the positive thing is that our customers drive this transition together with us. They ask for energy efficiency measures and services. Some of them even want to be active when it comes to demand and response. And more and more of our customers both large data centers, for example, and but also smaller grocery stores want to be prosumers, both for electricity and heat. And we welcome that development. Thank you. Thank you very much again. Um, much appreciated and interesting perspective in terms of um, what we need to think about around digital in particular, but also um, consumption, uh, con consumption behaviors. Um, colleagues, Challenging, albeit it is, I do want to take a reaction from you or questions from you and try and not be too late after 4.30 to let you go. Um, questions or comments? Well, the way I'm going to play it is um, I'm going to ask um, Marosh and Fatih to actually provide concluding remarks and you can address questions. And if there are any questions to the panel, I'll take first. So, over to you.
my goodness, you are a passive audience. You're going to make my life really easy. Not at all. Gentleman over there, the back, just first get yep, with your hand up. I'll take three. Okay. Yeah. okay. Say who you are. Again, very brief, please. All right. Alice Kokinos from uh, Eurobol.com. A question to Mr. Birol. Uh, as Donald Trump has pledged to support the coal industry in America, what do you think this example will have uh, as impact in the rest of the world by 2020? Okay, thank you very much. The gentleman there in the glasses next to you. Yes, yeah. This is Paolo Falcioni. Uh, I'm the chair of the Coalition for Energy Saving uh, here in, uh, in Brussels. Uh, given the role uh, that uh, energy efficiency is going to play, I would like to ask to the Vice President what would be the attitude of the European Commission toward the target on energy efficiency. Okay. I'll take one more, preferably from this side if I could. No? Gentleman there, sorry. Go on. No, please do wait for the mic, otherwise you, oh, others won't hear you. As a friend of Europe, Mr. Hutter, I have one question to the panel. The first one, what's running with water power stations worldwide and how will you use them in your preview? And the second is geothermics. Like Geo. Geothermics. Geothermy. Okay, please. Panelists, do any of you want to react to... I'll, I'll bring you... Chemics. Is that what you said? Geochemicals. Geothermal. Um, Panelists, do you want to respond to any of the, those, two, those three questions at all? And I'll, I'll ask Fatty and Marash to go last, but if there's any reaction from the panellists to the, what you've heard so far, any reactions at all? You don't have to, but I thought I'd give you the opportunity. Okay, great. Then uh, let's, let's, in terms of conclusion of the debate, I'm going to hand over first to Marash if you want to kick off, um, especially with that, that question around um, energy efficiency which I think is one of those things which is obviously a game-changer in, in, in the plan, but how do you get there? Thank you. Thank you very much. At first, I think that uh, we all agree that uh, uh, the uh, world energy outlook and the work of the agency is highly valuable, and uh, it brings a lot of insight and a lot of facts and analysis, which is very important for for our work, and I think it was very much uh, echoed also from the questions in the, in the audience uh, you allow me to, to react on these two questions on renewables and on energy efficiency. I think that it's uh, uh, quite clear, and we are repeating it uh, all the time, that uh, for us the ambition is very clear. We want to remain number one in renewables. That's very clear, and uh, I think uh, that uh, uh, we should really make sure that when we are discussing this issue, we bear this in mind, and that we would not be... Um, issuing dramatic statements, spreading panic across the Europe based on the leaked documents. When I was living here, I saw like fifth version of the directive we are going to put on the table next week. So therefore, what I want to say, just wait until the job is done. And uh, what I want to say is that we do not look at the renewables only as an object of one of the revisions we are going to put on the table, because we approach it in a holistic manner. What we need to achieve is that we need to create the conditions that renewables could be better embraced in the system, that we have uh, better trading platforms, that uh, we would have uh, better functioning interconnectors, that we would have a policy how to smarten our grids, which would be much faster, much uh, quicker uh, in uh, the, the response. 
and that uh, we would uh, actually adjust all our policies to the fact uh, that renewables are very robust, they are coming in a, a full force, and they are increasingly competitive. Because I believe that in the end, what we need to create uh, is to make sure that investment in the renewables has a strong business case. Because this is what would be that final driver which will push it to the level where we want to be. We cannot rely only, only on public subsidies to get there. We need to create business case, strong business interest. And I think it's already happening. We can, we can see it. And I think all the predictions which have been, uh, which been presented uh, by Fatih on this PowerPoint points to that direction. But we need to have everything right. Renewables directive, but also market design and all the accompanying measures which come with it. If it comes to the, uh, to the uh, energy efficiency, of course, here we are in uh, the uh, uh, discussions within the uh, Commission based on impact assessment, based on the October uh, 2014 um, conclusions, which have been adopted by the head of states and government at that time, which said that we should go to 27 with a view to 30 percent uh, uh, of uh, the target for the energy efficiency. We are looking how to achieve it in the best way, in the, in the, in the most cost-efficient way, in the way that it would uh, really work. And we know that we already have a strong case uh, for the energy uh, efficiency and are trying to link it with the empowering of the consumers, try to link it with uh, the fight against the poverty and try to link it with the financial instruments which would actually... Um, motivate the local authorities, the mayors, the, 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 the governments uh, to be much more robust in there and to put more money into the financial support of these measures. So uh, these have been just uh, two remarks of the questions which you mentioned. And if you allow me to conclude with uh, mm -hmm. one suggestion which we discussed with Fatih before we came here and I was a little bit short of time in my initial remarks. I found uh, the report of European Environmental uh, Agency on the investment into the power sector for the upcoming decade, very interesting. Mm -hmm. There are two scenarios, I would say, investment uh, in uh, the current, uh, let's call them park of the power stations, or the investment into modernized sector. What would be needed? What would be the savings? What might be the stranded assets? Because we didn't touch upon that today because we didn't have much time. So I suggested to Fatih that what uh, could be very interesting would be if we put experts together from his agency, from the European Commission, from the uh, environmental agency and try to work something what would be as consensual as possible outlook on uh, how we see the, the need for the investments. What is the, the risk of stranded assets in this very sensitive sector so we can provide better advice and we can, we can channel the thinking of the political leaders in um, uh, the direction uh, which would be uh, business-based, which would be based on, on solid analysis, and we should make sure that we would be modernizing, we would be changing energy landscape, we would be meeting our targets, and at the same time we would avoid as much as we can the investments in uh, the project which might uh, become later on stranded assets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for, firstly, thank you for dealing with that elephant in the room really effectively and boldly. Uh, it was much appreciated. And secondly, I think sharing with us in this room the idea you've had, because I think the, the notion of a multi-stakeholder um, grouping um, with experts that thinks about investment in the future is, is always a wise decision in terms of policy thinking as you move ahead. So you heard it here first. Let's hope it takes off. Um, Fatih, I want to conclude with you. Um, you've heard, you know, there are a number of issues that are raised. I won't rehearse them, but I think you've got a measure of the kind of key issues that are coming from the audience and leave you to um, conclude as well. Thank you very much. I have 
five points each, 30 seconds, very quickly. Starting with the Donald Trump question, which is the yes, easiest cool. to answer. Uh, I would say uh, the governments come and go across the world, and with the governments, uh, it is a very normal thing that the governments change. When the governments change, the, the energy policies uh, may change as well. And given the sheer size of the United States and its economy, the change in the U.S. energy policies will have not only implications for U.S., but for the uh, entire world. But I think where we are now, it is uh, too early to uh, speculate. Let's wait and see what kind of concrete policies come, and we can analyze and to see how, if any, those new policies will change the global uh, trends. Second question, uh, energy access, clean energy access. Yes, this is something that we all want to see. People will have energy, 1.2 billion people, and they will have this energy in a clean way, renewables. This is the main target, should be the main target of all of us. But if they don't have access to clean energy, they may want to use other energy sources. And we cannot, I repeat, we cannot condemn them that in India somebody uses uh, natural gas instead of renewables because they are emitting the world. Their contribution to the CO2 emissions is much smaller than uh, in, the, in Europe or United States and elsewhere. If we give them the other opportunities to choose uh, uh, better energy sources, um, or I should say zero emission energy sources, uh, this is something else. But while uh, renewable become the uh, main target for access, they, the countries may uh, choose others, and therefore we should be very careful. But when it comes to Africa, it is my very dream that Africa may do something that the others didn't. When you look at the economic development, the history of Europe, US, China, the economic development performance or the uh, achievements are realized on the base of using a lot of coal, and after that, after coal, they are moving to gas or renewables and others. Africa, with its huge renewable energy resources, we may well see, given the falling uh, uh, fallen cost of renewables may be the first region or continent to go directly renewables or natural gas and others to have a different combination than the uh, rest of the uh, world. Energy efficiency. I wanted to say something uh, Claude uh, left, but uh, he thanked uh, uh, Maroche and me for talking about energy efficiency and I wanted to thank him. So be, uh, he's not here, but if somebody knows him, tells him, we also owe him because he always mentioned energy efficiency throughout the years and he was very stubborn. And I am very much looking forward to read his forthcoming book, I understood, about the, his times in, in uh, Brussels. ETS, Jane mentioned, it's one of the uh, tipping points, the second revolution of ETS. I hope it will be a, a good revolution because uh, it should be, I hope it should be a, a well-designed uh, ETS because when we look at the carbon price, before Paris, they were nine uh, euros per ton before Paris Agreement was made. And now Paris Agreement, we reached a historical milestone uh, and so on. And now they fell down to, uh, that after Paris Agreement, they fell down to six euros per ton. So let's see, uh, I hope your second revolution is... Uh, uh, different than the uh, prices uh, we have uh, now. Uh, Eric asked energy efficiency. He doesn't see the, which technologies bring so much energy efficiency in our main scenario, and uh, Laro, should, uh, Laro should correct me if I am not wrong. These are based on the existing technologies, but putting the right policies in place, energy efficiency policies, including 
a phasing out of fossil fuel subsidies in many countries across uh, uh, the world. The last issue our colleague asked about water, and it's a very good uh, uh, question. In our report, we have a, a dedicated chapter on uh, water. Uh, I couldn't have time to uh, talk about this, but the general message is two things. Energy sector is becoming thirstier and thirstier. It means we need more and more water for the energy sector. It's number one. And the second, two degrees more radical uh, uh, policies to reach two degrees may require more water than the, uh, the, the our, uh, base case, the higher temperature increase uh, cases because of the type of technologies we may choose. So therefore, water and energy policies, uh, we believe, need to be better integrated in the uh, future if we want to have a, a global sustainable energy future. And I stop here, Mr. Chairman. Thank you so much. I'm glad you made that last point because I wanted to pick that up just by including that the, the, the hidden dimension, it's a visible one now, obviously, is that we're living in the hottest year ever since the books opened and the relationship between water, as you say, and energy efficiency and consumption is going to become really quite significant and perhaps we don't understand the implications of it as yet. Colleagues, I hope you found this to be uh, an informative, insightful, thoughtful discussion. Um, that was our aim, uh, for you to engage with um, the World Energy Outlook. What I do know is that given the context we're living in, behaviour change, system change and cities are going to be quite at the anchor of this debate as we move, move ahead. I hope that we have enabled you to connect the dots um, debate the key issues and hopefully think about the change that you need to think about in terms of policy development on this agenda. I want to thank our panellists and not least Fatih for spending time here with us today. It's been very, very helpful. Thank you very much. Let's thank our panellists in the usual manner. <laughs>